Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and Indie Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for Indie Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Spring football is almost over with Saturday's Blue Gold game, and the NFL draft starts Thursday night. But in the middle of a busy week, we wanted to squeeze in a little bit of recruiting talk as well. So we invited on our number one draft pick for recruiting analysts, and that's the legendary Tom Lemming. Tom is in the middle of his annual travels around the country to meet the top high school football prospects and create his Prep Football Report magazine, which will be released in July. Tom, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Uh, it's good to be on with you. Tom, we were talking before we hit record. Can you explain to us where you're at and what's on the agenda this week for you? <laughs> I just left El Paso about an hour and a half ago. I'm in the middle of the desert in New Mexico. Tomorrow, I saw a running back in El Paso, and tomorrow I got all the top players in the Phoenix area, including Brian Erlacher's son, Kennedy, meeting me, and a wide receiver, Deuce Robinson, that uh, Notre Dame's offered. He's only going to be a junior this coming year, but I've got all the top kids, on, all the underclassmen meeting me at Hamilton High School in Chandler tomorrow. So I'm, uh, I just finished interviewing several players in Texas. Um, I had been, uh, I was Eli Manning's guest for his TV show, which will air in the fall, uh, last Thursday. Then I went and spent a couple of days with Mac Brown and the North Carolina staff and then had all the top kids in the Carolinas meet me Saturday. And since then, I've been driving west. So I'm in El Paso. I'm in New Mexico right now. And uh, so far, so good. Well, avoid those tumbleweeds, Tom. Um, <laughs> I will. One one player that I really wanted to ask you about who I think you ended up getting to visit with in North Carolina was Darren Agu, who's committed a, a defensive end in this 2022 class, born in Ireland, raised in Britain, kind of breathtaking athletically, but very little football experience. I wondered when you got a chance to meet him and see him, what your impressions were. I liked him a lot. He has more of an English accent than an Irish accent. Me being an Irish American, I was um, trying to look for that Irish accent, but it's more British. Nice kid too, and he's um, he's got the body of like a power forward in uh, basketball, and he runs a four six. 
So when you look at him, he's got five-star potential. He's not there yet. He's got to learn how to play football a little bit more. But with Mike Elston and Marcus Freeman and with Notre Dame's strength coach, who's one of the best in the business working on him, I look for him to maybe develop into an All-American at Notre Dame. It all comes down, like I told him, it's all going to come down to his desire, his will to be the best, his aggressiveness and uh, ability to take instruction. And I think he's going to do all that. He's a very good student. All those guys at the international school there in uh, North Carolina are all good students. So I look for nothing but great things for him, but not right away. I think Notre Dame fans, he would, he's one of the guys who would definitely benefit from a red shirt year and maybe sit out this coming year. I mean, his first year at Notre Dame, develop with the weight coach, learn the positions and everything else. And I think uh, it could pay big dividends down the line because he's got that kind of natural athletic ability. Nice kid. Tom, speaking of Darren Agut, uh, Notre Dame actually has three defensive ends committed already uh, with him and Tyson Ford and Aiden Gobera. I'm curious, which one of that group do you like the most? Well, Tyson Ford, I saw him about a year ago. He's a big athletic guy. Uh, he's a, he's a four-star plus guy, no doubt. He dominates the competition. He's got great hands, real long arms, quick feet. He'll be 270, 280 in another year. He's got the great physique, but he's also proven himself as an all-state performer as a junior. So he's a big time guy. Um, uh, I saw, matter of fact, um, Aiden's going to be on the cover of my summer magazine, along with every other top underclassman in the Virginia, Maryland area. I took it out in front of the Martin Luther King Memorial, so that'll be our cover. I liked him when I saw him, though. He was thin looking. He's very good on film. He's got that great first step. He got a kind of explosive moves to the ball, but he needs to have more weight and strength to be that dominating player that he could become. But I know the way Mike Elston thinks, and I think the entire Notre Dame defensive staff, they look for length and athletic ability first. So he's definitely got both. But it's just a matter of, again, I don't know if he'll be ready right away. I think of the three, Tyson Ford will be ready as soon as he hits the ground running at Notre Dame. And I think he can contribute at least on the two deep. The other two, I think, would benefit from a weightlifting redshirt year. Tom, um, you've – you're meeting with all these kids on the road and you ask them questions and so forth. I'm wondering if Notre Dame is getting a different reception this year than maybe in past years as you talk to these kids, if there's anything. Absolutely. Different. Absolutely. You know, Eric and Tyler, you know, when I talked to you guys before, I always thought Notre Dame never offered enough guys early and they were out of a third of the top players every year before they even had a shot at them because of their, lateness when it comes to offering guys they're a little too careful too cautious they got to get on top of the guys nowadays because a lot of these kids will tell you the first couple of schools that offer them are the ones that kind of stick with them especially if they're big names so and Notre Dame lost a lot of guys earlier they're not doing that anymore they're in on every big name they're going to lose the majority of them like almost everyone this side of Alabama does but it's a different kind of a recruiting year I, I notice it right away particularly on the defensive side where uh, Marcus Freeman and uh, Mike Elston and the whole gang are really offering a lot of guys early. And uh, uh, so I do think that you're going to see one of their best recruiting efforts on defensive side of the ball in a long time, probably maybe even since the 1990 class, which I still think is the high watermark when it comes to defensive classes. When you look at that class, they had Bryant Young and Oliver Gibson and Jeff Burris and Tom Carter and Pete Bursich and, uh, uh, and, and um, uh, 
several Brian, Hamilton, so many really big time ball players. Jim Flanagan, and, that was a terrific defensive class. And a probably big the draft best one. Class. But that was thirty years ago. It was thirty one years ago, and they still haven't matched it. Every now and then they'd get a Jalen Smith or a Manti Teo, but to be honest with you, it's been few and far between. They've had a lot of transient type defensive coaches at Notre Dame also, but I think now Marcus Freeman could uh, set down roots at Notre Dame for at least three, four years. I think you're going to see a different, I think that, that could lead to a national title because defensively they've always been a little bit short when it came to the great athletes, good enough to beat almost everyone on their list. But you know, if they had to play Clemson or Ohio state or LSU or uh, Alabama or Georgia uh, those schools are more talented than Notre Dame, but I think they're catching up. And I think give them another two years or so, and they'll catch up to most of those schools. It might be tougher to catch up to Alabama, but everyone else, I think Notre Dame will be in the mix. Tom, I think one of those differentiators uh, in terms of being able to win the national championship comes down to the quarterback position a lot of times. I'm curious if you think between Tyler Buckner and uh, commit Steve Angeli. Does Notre Dame have quarterbacks good enough to win a national championship in the future? You know, that's a good question. I'm hoping so, but they, the one thing they've lacked is developing a quarterback that's good enough to go to the NFL and be a starter. And uh, I think that's the one thing that of all the positions that has haunted Notre Dame over the years, it's been quarterback. Ian Book, Book was an exceptional quarterback, you know, athletic enough, but was he athletic enough to win a national title? I don't know about that. He's a great kid, and uh, but I'm not sure if he was. They're hoping Tyler Buckner will be the guy. Steve is an outstanding ball player. Again, uh, the question mark on him, too. Coming out, I'm not sure. You know, um, I, I had suggested Notre Dame to go after Caleb Williams from a Catholic school in D.C. back when he was a sophomore, but they didn't really even look at him. Uh, they focused on Tyler Buckner, and that could be the right decision. I always believe, though, that they should go after everybody and then eventually find out which one's the best one instead of zeroing in on one guy right away. Again, um, that's just my theory, but I do think that that's been their Achilles heel for Notre Dame, not the great quarterback that in college, great quarterbacks can win national titles when you look at them or, or uh, definitely could win Heisman's. And uh, look at Alabama. They've had that great, they've had great players at every position, but they've always had great quarterbacks. And even Mac Jones, even that, Super heavily recruited, but they realized there was something about him that made him different. Steve Angeli is also that type of player. I've seen him since his freshman year because they have all the kids meet me at Bergen Catholic every year, the Northern Jersey kids. And uh, he's he's a leader. He's got a good arm. He's efficient. He can move. He can extend plays. He's not a super fast kid, but he can extend plays. And he plays against much better competition than Tyler Buckner did. Tyler's only played started one year of high school ball. And he played in the private area of San Diego, not against the real good team. So the jury's still out on him, not out on his athletic ability because he's got a ton of it. But I think the jury's still out on him. And then Steve, uh, even though he had a, you know, he's a real good year, but does he have the kind of elite year that would make him the starting quarterback for two, three years at Notre Dame? Tom, looking at the 2023 class, there looks like there's some pretty elite arms in that class, elite quarterbacks. And Notre Dame has offered two that I know of, Arch Manning, Eli's nephew, and Dante Moore from Detroit King. Do you think they have a shot at either of those guys? Well, I think, you know, with Dante Moore, he's going to want, you know, his coach, 
is a good guy. I, and I, you know, I've seen Dante the last two years, freshman, sophomore, and um, he's got real good size, real athletic, but he's got good grades. He's got everything going for him in the public league there in Detroit. And I really like him. And I think it comes, it comes down to Tommy Reese's personality and ability to sell himself and sell Notre Dame and sell a NFL future. Cause that's what every quarterback looks for. Even if they're not going to make it, they believe they are. So you got to sell, you're going to be our guy of the future. We're going to make you into an NFL quarterback. The problem Notre Dame's had is that they haven't had any NFL quarterbacks that have actually made it over the past, um, I may be wrong, but 30 years or even more. And that really hurts them when it comes to um, the legitimate legitimacy of selling the position. But it comes down to the ability of the assistant coach to sell, to sell his own position. I think Tommy Reese could really make a name for himself by bringing in Arch Manning. I was down with him about a month ago when I was in New Orleans. And like I just mentioned, I was with his uncle, Eli, talking about him last Thursday when I was in New Jersey filming his show. And uh, what I understand is that maybe the grandfather, Archie Manning, may have called Notre Dame and asked if, if they're going to recruit him. So that could, if that's the case, then they do have a real good shot at him. I do know David Cutcliffe because he coached Peyton at Tennessee and he coached Eli when he was head coach at Ole Miss. Uh, Ed Ogeron's already taken two of his teammates, two good friends, especially the offensive lineman, Bo Bardet, who's um, – dad played there so LSU's got to be in the mix and so um it's going to be interesting to follow you know follow with those Duke Tennessee Ole Miss LSU and possibly now Notre Dame but if, if that's true if Archie Manning did call Notre Dame and ask them to look at his grandson then that's a very good sign because I believe that you know Cooper the father will have obviously a say but Archie Manning I think might have the best biggest say of all of the um, Mannings when it comes to where Arch is going to wind up playing He's got his own camp. He's developed them. He's in New Orleans living there with Cooper, you know, the other. Peyton and uh, Eli lives in New Jersey, so they're a little bit away from the scene. So I do think that that could really come. And, uh, and it, again, it comes down to Tommy Reese selling himself, selling the program, and selling the future of both ball players on Notre Dame football and their ability to train them and teach them and, and help them become the greatest quarterback they could possibly be. Tom, I, I mean, I don't – I'm wondering if you think Notre Dame – I mean, certainly in that class they're swinging for the fences. Did they maybe not swing for the fences enough sometimes? And the, and the second part of that is, do you have to? I mean, Marcus Mariota and Johnny Manziel won Heisman trophies and they were not – highly rated quarterback. So I'm curious what the right formula is there for Notre Dame. Well, you got to develop them too. Same thing with Drew Brees. Purdue only got him because they lost everyone else they were going after. <laughs> and uh, and they – but, the, you know, they had good quarterback coaches. You get the guys. And Tommy Reese needs to find a guy that he can actually train the way he wants to train them and develop them into a uh, an elite Heisman candidate. It's my belief that every quarterback at Notre Dame – should be a Heisman candidate because you're Notre Dame, a school that gets more publicity than any other school in the country. They've got their own network. So uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been a quarterback in Notre Dame that's actually been in the Heisman race in years and years and years. And it, that's, that's that, to me, that's one of the big uh, problems at Notre Dame is developing quarterbacks, elite-type quarterbacks. They've always developed good quarterbacks, but, I mean, the elite guys that can, you know, get everybody's attention. 
the other part of your, the other question you mentioned was the fact that you no know, Notre Dame has not been on guys uh, in the past uh, to me soon enough and, and 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 swinging for the fences go after every great player. Here's the thing that what I thought I mean Harbaugh did it at Stanford. They always had a rule that you don't offer the kids until after the first semester of their senior year. Harbaugh changed all of that. They started offering the guys much earlier, and he was able to land them. The ones that couldn't get into school academically, he told them, we love you, but we can't get you in later. But that's that's their problem. If they don't have the grades, then it's their fault, not Notre Dame's. But Notre Dame should offer all the guys they see as athletic enough and good enough to play for them and let the chip fall where they may academically later on in the year. But always be in the ball game with these guys because that's what everyone else does. And the goal for Coach Kelly, he's an outstanding coach. And the one thing that could put him among the legends of Notre Dame is for him to win a national title. That's what he's, he's already going to have more wins than anybody in the history of Notre Dame. But he hasn't won the national title yet. Or you, so you've got to swing for the fences with every great player. Stay on top of them. Each assistant coach should land five-star players, at least one guy every year. That's what Alabama does. That's what Clemson does. Are close to it, four-star plus type guys. You know, you don't have to uh, get five stars each position, but you got to bring in the elite of the elite for your positions because your name is associated with cornerbacks or safeties or linebackers or running backs. That's the assistant coach's name is associated with that. If they have average players, it makes the coach look like an average coach. It just makes sense. Most of these guys have ambition to be coordinators and head coaches in the future. You're not going to get that way if your kids – keep bringing in three-star players year after year. Three-star players are easy for Notre Dame to get. They never get two stars. They always get three just by talking to them. You get the four and fives by spending one or two years on top, working them and working them consistently. You don't go play golf. What you do for your hobby is recruiting. And that's what you got to do to be an effective recruiter for the assistant coaches, each guy. And I like this staff. It's I think the best staff since uh, one of Lou Holtz's earlier staffs when it came to recruiting. I think Taylor does a great job of running back. Very impressed with the tight end coach. Quinn is the best offensive line coach in the country when it combines both of them. I mean, everybody all along, Marcus Freeman's got a great reputation. The entire defensive staff does. Uh, young guys at corner and safety coaching. So they've got to they've actually make their names in recruiting. Uh, you, you recruit great players, all of a sudden it makes you look like a much better coach. So this staff is one of the best staffs they've had in a long time. I don't see any really weaknesses in it, but each coach has to recruit impact players at, its, at their own position, and then Notre Dame in the next couple of years will win a national title because Kelly's good enough coach to win a national title. He just needs impact players similar to Clemson, Ohio State, close to Alabama. I don't know if they'll ever get that way because Alabama is on a streak that I've never seen a school ever since uh, Frank Leahy in the late 40s. Tom, this this summer, um, the ca uh, calendar's opening up. The dead period will finally end, and, and Notre Dame will be able to host kids for visits and host camps as well. I'm curious, do you think it will be more important for the 2022 class and closing in on those guys or establishing some good ground with the 2023 class? I, Tyler, I think it'll be both. I think it's going to be – you've got to – they've gotten such a great jump on 2023 – that they even offered a 2024 kid. I was in Pittsburgh last um, Thursday or Friday, but Wednesday, because before. Anyway, I went to Central Catholic High School and ran into the head coach who had, I had seen in 1978 when I went there to interview Dan Marino. The coach was one of his teammates. And uh, 
he brought out a linebacker. And then Notre Dame offered the linebacker a few days later. When I saw him, I had talked to Marcus Freeman about it. But I do believe that 2022 and 2023 class, you combine them both, bring in great players, let them all beat each other. Because if Notre Dame's going to wind up with some of them, they're going to be playing together anyway. So bring them both in. And I actually think what they should do during the season, I noticed that Urban had done it at Ohio State and Franklin does it at Penn State. One of the year, one of the games for um, Notre Dame have just a complete 2023 uh, group come in for a big game unofficially. Bring them all in and let them see what uh, excite. Maybe even the USC game that'll be an exciting game. Have them all come in and see what Notre Dame has to offer: the electricity in the air and the beautiful campus. So, I, I, I think um, you're entering a phase at Notre Dame where the fans are going to like because I do think that as far as recruiting is concerned, they've taken a couple of extra steps in the last few months, and I do think that it's going to pay big dividends down the line. And that's Anthony Specka was the was the linebacker you were talking about, and uh, he is. And he likes said, Notre Dame. Yeah, you sent me oh. a picture of him. He's a good-looking kid. I mean, freshman. Uh, <laughs> a freshman in high school looks like that. So you know he's going to be a national recruit. I think he grew up as a Notre Dame fan. So and he was there with Kurt Hennish's brother, who was also there at the time, and. I think um, Notre Dame will definitely wind up with Hennish's brother if they really want him, and I think they do. So they're both good friends, those two kids, and even though one's a junior and one's a freshman. Tom, when you are – I don't know how closely you follow the draft, but I would imagine you know what what goes on. When you watch these guys coming off the board, are you kind of going back in your mind and saying three-star, five-star, four-star? Are you, are you evaluating how you – uh, pick these guys come out of high school or is that not fair? Are they just, is there just a different development that goes on in college that you, you're not trying to predict draft choices. You're trying to predict college productivity. No, I do that. I do that. You have to do that when you look at them. And if I'm wrong, like Notre Dame's uh, potential number one draft choice, I, I, he was a three star in my list and he turned out to be a five star. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll just deny it that I was wrong back then. So that's the best way to do it. Just act like it never happened. I was, uh, and then if there's a good one, like when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl this year, they asked him, you know, I said, you were kind of an unknown in high school. He said, no, I was an All-American on the prep football report, which he was. I named Tom Brady an All-American. I had gotten a tip. John Gruden and um, Billy Callahan were just getting there over, over to, uh, and I used to have the kids meet in Alameda. And Brady was one of the guys that came along with the Concord De La Salle quarterback and a few of the other ones out in the Bay Area. So I so he threw for like 3,000 yards as a high school uh, senior. So I named him as a member of my prep football report All-American team. So I'll brag about that. But if I miss a guy, then I act like, uh, uh, I'll, like I'll just avoid the subject. But if, I, if I'm right, I'll, I'll brag about it a bit. Well, Tom, let's let's circle back and embarrass you a little bit. No, I'm just teasing about embarrassing you. <laughs> but but how how do you kind of reconcile what you saw from Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa in Hampton, Virginia, and who he became in college? Where did you feel like that evaluation went wrong? Well, it didn't go wrong at the time. He was not a five-star player. He's from okay. Tidewater area. He was underweight. He didn't have, he wasn't real strong. He was athletic, but he hadn't proved it yet. He wasn't all Tidewater or anything out there. And I kind of rely on how they do as high school seniors and juniors, especially juniors. 
when I go through the area, I don't go through when they're senior. I go through right before, right after their junior year. And I'm, I'm, I spent a lot of time at least twice a year in the Tidewater area where he was from. And um, uh, he was just a good player at the time. Notre Dame developed him. You got to give a lot of credit to Notre Dame's strength coach that made him much bigger. He always had the speed, but he didn't have any of the strength or the, uh, or, or, you know, or the impactability in high school or else you would have seen Alabama, Clemson, everybody else coming after him. So in football, muscle, grit, uh, hard work, a lot of that really does mean, you know, you could be a basketball player if you're 6'10 and athletic, even if you're lazy, a lot of times you're still going to get that scholarship and play well. But in football, you've got to be, you know, it's a tough sport to practice, even sometimes tougher to play when you're going up against the better players. So you're going to make mistakes. Well, all right, Tom, we really appreciate you taking time to join us today. Uh, have safe travels out there, heading out to Arizona, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon enough. Okay, guys, take care. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some predictions for the blue gold game. First one I have for us, Eric, is more completions, Jack Cohn or Drew Pine? Well, if this was the um, stable Ford system for football, the kind of spring games we're used to seeing where it's ones against twos, and I would say absolutely Drew Pine would get it. But this is a traditional game where they're divvying up the teams. I'm not sure which of those quarterbacks is going to have Tyler Buckner also on his team, and they're going to want to see a lot of him. Um, my sense is that he would be on Pine's team, which would make me lean toward Cone, but somehow the number two quarterback seems to shine in these games and it gets everybody stirred up that maybe they're playing the wrong guy. So I will go with Drew Pine. Except for 2019 when it was Phil Dracovic as the uh, backup quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm going with, with Jack Cohn uh, as a guy that'll get more completions. I, I, I'm curious if they maybe uh, have Buckner play as the backup for both of their teams, if that's maybe something they try to do and, and get him a bunch of reps. But um, I, uh, I think I think it'll be Cone. I think he'll I think he'll have the smoothest. I, mean, I guess it depends how they divvy up the offensive line, but I just think that he will um, be able to um, do the best in terms of having a good connection with the guys and and being on the same page with with the guys. And it seems like his Notre Dame's confidence in him is pretty high. So I, I'll I'll pick Cone for this this Saturday. Um, who will have the most rushing yards? Uh, you know, they're the the two freshmen aren't here yet. Uh, Audric Estemi and uh, Logan Diggs. So I think they're going to split it up pretty evenly between the other guys. And I think Ty Chris Tyree will end up getting the most yards because I think he's going to break some. He's going to catch catch them maybe in a wrong alignment. Again, since the teams are being divvied up, maybe there's guys playing next to each other that aren't used to playing against each other. That's why I think Chris Tyree can expose them. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with Sebo Flemister. I just think he'll get the most work. Um, so, and, uh, and Sebo never doesn't run hard. Um, so any, any yards that he has available to him, I think he will get. So I'll go with Sebo Flemister as my guest for the leading rusher on Saturday. Next one I have for us is over under seven and a half total touchdowns. 
Um, you know, that running clock in the second half makes it difficult, but I'm going to say since they're probably going to cut a lot of the special team stuff out, I'll, I'll say just slightly overall, I'll go with a more offensive game. Okay. I will go under, I just think the depth on the defense is better. Um, so I think even when we get later in the games, I think that the defense will probably perform better than the offense will. Um, but who knows? I mean, this is the, <laughs> if, if there's going to be any blue gold game that we have no idea what's going to happen, this will be the one. So, uh, um, uh, I, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to guess under for seven and a half total touchdowns who will have the most tackles. I would have said drew white. I, I think this defense lends itself to the linebackers having higher tackle totals since I'm not sure whether drew white is going to play. I'm going to go with Bo Bauer getting the most tackles. I, I'm going to go with Isaiah Pryor. I was I, I was leaning towards someone that would, wasn't a starter that maybe would get more time. Um, and I think that he certainly um, – I think he'll be playing with a chip on his shoulder to try to prove himself at the rover position where it seems like Jack Kaiser's ahead of him. Um, so I will uh, predict that Isaiah Pryor will be uh, running all over the field on Saturday to try to uh, improve his – playing opportunities. The last one I have for us is over under nine and a half sacks. I'll go over on that. That I mean, it depends on how the, the officials rule those. And it seems like some, some years, if you're just, if your breath droplets could come within six feet of them, <laughs> it's a sack. And that's what I'm going to guess is, will be a sack this year, especially with the offensive line, developing the defensive line being so good and the offensive line being split up on two different sides. I, I think it's going to lend itself to high sack totals. Yeah. I, I think the line being split up, I think may actually be beneficial um, because I think it's like, I think the number two offensive line doesn't stand much of a chance against Notre Dame's number two defensive line. Um, but the, that's not necessarily going to how it's going to be matched up on Saturday. So I'm still going to go over because I do think that the defensive line depth is better than the offensive line depth. Um, but uh, I don't think it'll be quite as many as the 15 in the 2019 blue globe game when 12 of those went to against Phil Dracovic. So I, I do expect the defensive line to have a good game. And, and like I mentioned, I think that the defense will probably be more, the more impressive group at, by the end of Saturday. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's that you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm T James NDI and Eric's at E Hansen NDI. First one we have is from Marie Biafore of the remaining recruits on the board for the 2022 class. Who are the three biggest must gets to help close the gap with the elite programs? Uh, well, I would definitely go with a wide receiver, and I would go with C.J. Williams or Tobias Merriweather. I think Notre Dame has a better chance at C.J. Williams. Um, I would have put a running back in here, too, but because they already have Jadarian Price, I'm not sure that it's as uh, critical that they get that, that other high four-star or five-star guy. Um, so I'm going to go a couple guys on defense. I'm going to go with cornerback Jair Brown. He's from Ohio. He's an Ohio State commit that they have a chance to flip. And then I'm going to butcher this young man's name. He's a safety from Iowa. 
Xavier Nwampa, um, one of the best safeties in the country. They need a, kind of an heir apparent to Kyle Hamilton to make sure that defense is keeping up with the offensive evolution. Yeah, our lists are pretty similar. Uh, I think, in my opinion, I mean, you just go at, at whoever the highest rated guy at the biggest positions of needs are. Um, and that, to me, that's C.J. Williams at wide receiver, Xavier Nwamka at safety. Beyond that, I wasn't there wasn't another, a third position that I thought this is a critical need. Um, so there was three guys that I was considering, um, including defensive end Cyrus Moss, running back Gavin Sawchuk, and linebacker Jalen Sneed. Um, I'll go with Jalen Sneed, um, even though there are two other linebackers in this class. Um, I do think that um, Marcus Freeman wants to get as many talented linebackers in this class as he can, um, and I. I I think that getting a guy like Jalen Sneed in this class would be a really good combination to have with the, the other two commits they have and, and Joshua Burnham. And it looks like they're probably going to get Jalen Sneed. It's not and, over, but they're leading. Right, and Nolan Ziegler. So I think those are the guys that I think you, you'd want. I mean, Cyrus Moss is really talented, um, but like we were talking to Tom earlier, I think you really like Notre Dame's defensive end class already. Um, and the running back situation, to me, it's also – not just that you have Jerrion Price in this class, but you also have two running backs that I think you like in the previous class too. So the, the need isn't necessarily dire. Although anytime you can get a really highly recruited running back, I think you don't turn down that, turn down that opportunity, but look at, look at Kyron Williams. He wasn't a guy that people thought, thought that Notre Dame absolutely had to have in their class. And now he's, he's, he's uh, uh, their best running back and has a chance to, to be re- really special this coming year. Next question is from at NDJeff06. Will we see Tommy Reese get aggressive with his recruiting and go after top 100 kids, even if Notre Dame has a commit already at that position? They are happy with who they have, but as Marcus Freeman has shown, they can do better. Example he used is they didn't offer DJ, I'm assuming he means Uyunglele, at quarterback, and he said he would have listened. And then when I asked Jeff for clarification, he, he, he wanted us to discuss both at the quarterback position and the skill skill player positions? Well, certainly in 2023, they're aiming very high. I mean, when you look at their offer list, especially from that whole pot of gold thing that they did on March 17th, and you match it up with the Rivals Top 100 and the 247, uh, you know, Top 100, there are a ton of kids offensively and defensively, but I mean, they're really going after elite players. Now in 2022, there's still guys on the board that they're, they're having in for visits. I mean, CJ Williams and Tobias Merriweather right now are both supposed to come visit. Um, there was a recent Michigan decommit. I believe his last name is Groves. Uh, they're trying to line up a visit for him at wide receiver running backs. I mean, Singleton, Sawchuck, um, and uh, is it Hayden? Is that is that the other kid's name from Memphis, the running back? I think Dallas it's Hayden. So, so, I mean, and then you got um, really good offensive linemen still on the board. Um, you're probably going to get um, commitments from Eli Reardon and Holden Stays at tight end. Um, I'm not sure. I, I just think – when you look at the board on defense, 
they're either they've either landed some of those guys or they're leading for a lot of those. Whereas the offense, maybe they're not as leading for as many of them. And I think there's been some misses at the wide receiver position already that maybe leads you to believe. But I think Tommy Reese certainly in terms of targeting players is especially in 2023 is going after the right guys and getting those offers out early. Yeah, I think some of this, I think Marcus Freeman gets, he, he deserves credit, but I think he gets more, people assume he's already going to get everyone that he possibly wants, like already, like it's a, let him actually get the guys before we we, we crown him as the next big thing. Um, I think certainly he's put them in a good position, but also he was also in the position where he could come in and start with a clean state and go go offer all these guys because he wasn't here. And he had an excuse that, well, I hadn't offered you yet because I wasn't here. So that's why I'm offering you now. Um, so it's a different, uh, certainly a different situation than what Tommy Reese was dealing with. It, Tommy Reese and the offense offered the guys that they felt the, the, that they wanted to target already. And it's not like Tommy Reese could start over in March and say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to throw all that out and we're going to go after all these guys that we didn't offer before. So it turns out we actually liked them more. Um, so it, so it's a little bit different and with the QB position. You're not, you're certainly not going to pursue more than one guy in, in the same class. It's just not going to work in, in modern college football. Um, I think he pursued Steve Angeli as the guy he wanted to pursue. Did he pick the right one? That's probably debatable, um, but they should, they definitely should pursue a top 100 quarterback every cycle. Um, I'm not sure that the staff thinks in the terms of a top 100 guy, they, they come up with their own evaluations of guys and they're not necessarily as concerned about what um, the recruiting analysts rank them, whether it's at number 99 overall or 116th. But uh, as for the other skill positions, they've already shown a willingness to do that. I mean, just look at tight end. Jack Nickel would still be in the class if they didn't feel like they they could still go after tight ends that they liked more than Jack Nickel and Holden Stays and Eli Raritan. Now they might not, those guys aren't necessarily top 100 guys, but they like them more. Um, the last wide receiver class was good. Um, this, they need some work to do in this class. That's why we both mentioned C.J. Williams as a receiver, um, as a big need for Notre Dame. Um, and Lance Taylor has shown at the running back position that they'll they'll go after top running backs. That's why they're still in the running for Gavin Sawchuk. So um, I think Notre Dame is going after the recruits. Um, just I, I'm not sure. People don't feel like the success rate is as high as it is as they they feel and hope that it will be with Freeman. And I understand that Freeman's the new guy. You have, you, you don't have, re, you don't have reasons to not like Marcus Freeman yet. And at some point, there probably will be. Um, there might be a guy that you say, well, why are they taking this guy? I mean, people, people might question why, are they, why are they taking Darren Agu when there's other defensive ends out, out there that that are more highly rated than them? But um, Notre Dame is is going to evaluate the guys that they like and figure out which ones they can get on on campus and don't feel like they can have the most success here. Uh, next question is from Eric Kirchner at EKCOM1. Thoughts on my Raiders taking JOK at number 17? I'm on board with that. I, I have no problems with that pick. I don't have a dog in the fight as far as the Raiders go. I don't love them or hate them. Uh, uh, if it happens, that means I win the prop bet for last week of the over-under 17 and a half. And I, I pick seven. I don't mind losing the prop bet. It's, it's be history it would be the highest uh a note there's only been two or there's only been one notre dame linebacker drafted in the first round and that's bob crable um so 
He went at number 23, so Jeremiah going at 17 would be history, which would be kind of fun to write about. So I'm on board with it. I'm I'm not rooting against you. Yeah, I think any team that drafts Jeremiah will be pleased. I think uh, he's he's a great athlete, he's a great great person, um, and I think uh, he can do a lot of different things. And even at the NFL level, I think he'll still be able to do a lot of those things uh, particularly well. Next question is from Bob Carroll at B Carroll three. Seems like there is lots of discussion on wide receiver development. What goes into that process? Route discipline, reading coverages, body frame, question mark. Well, I think you named some of them there. And, and I had a question that was a little bit similar to that in my chat today. Why does Charlie Weiss feel like Golden Tate could get on the field as a freshman at, and, and then be creative and think out of the box. And why doesn't Brian Kelly do that? And I think some of it's philosophy. Now, if you ask Evan Sharpley, Golden Tate didn't play nearly enough as a freshman. Um, but I think Charlie was willing to live with the developmental holes in the game for the home runs he could get from Golden. And, and so it's like a baseball player. Are you willing to live with all the strikeouts of a young home run hitter until he has better plate discipline. Charlie can live with that and Brian can't. And so he wants a guy that's a really good blocker. He wants a guy that has great route discipline, great able to read, you know, the defenses, because if not, they're going to run the wrong route, depending on what the defense is. So is that on Brian Kelly's philosophy? Is that on Dell Alexander? I mean, and then we had, um, Miles Boykin on who said Dell Alexander was the best receivers coach he's ever had. So it, it's hard to kind of put your finger on it, but I think there's probably a happy medium between what Charlie did with Golden Tate and Brian being so rigid and the wide receivers having to be perfect at everything if they've got home run potential. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was something we were trying to get more details from Miles Boykin on. I would have liked a little bit more specifics about how um, you have to develop and what Delvon Alexander did to develop him. Um, he he mentioned that you sort of have to do everything right. You can't just be good at one thing. You got to be able to do everything that is being asked of you at the receiver position, and that the details really matter to Dell Alexander. So um, I, I think it's all those things that he mentioned: reading coverages and. Um, route discipline, body frame, you have to have the correct technique um, and you have to prepare your body to fulfill those demands. So um, that's how Notre Dame has sort of done that. I, I don't, they're not against guys playing early if they feel like they meet their requirements, but it seems like they're having a hard time um, getting guys, getting guys to meet the requirements that they feel comfortable enough to put them out there on a consistent basis in recent years. Next question is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. I saw mention of ND possibly pursuing a grad transfer offensive lineman from Pitt. Do you guys see Notre Dame possibly taking a grad transfer to shore up the offensive line and bridge the experience gap among the guys we have? Well, I don't think they're going to go after the kid from Pitt. I think he's going to end up elsewhere in the ACC. Um, I think what Notre Dame's strategy is with the grad transfer market they're not always actively looking to add, but sometimes they're looking to cover their butt in case there's an injury or an unexpected transfer or COVID. I mean, last year um, had 
there been a spring practice, maybe the cornerbacks would have developed enough that they didn't need Nick McLeod, but they had contacted Nick way back in January and were kind of following him. And then when they got to May, the numbers lined up, the need lined up, and they pulled pulled the trigger. Same with Trevor Spates. They seemed to think they needed another running back. Turns out they didn't. They didn't know what Kyron Williams was doing back in St. Louis to transform his body and change his career arc. And, and so, you know, had they known that, had he shown that in spring practice, maybe they don't add uh, spades. So they're just preparing for every eventuality, especially with those grad transfers. So, um, you know, I think it's really smart to just monitor it, but just because you're monitoring it, or you kick the tires on somebody doesn't mean you're actively looking at that. I would be surprised if they took an offensive lineman. Yeah. The grad transfer stuff is a little bit exhausting to me. I think when anyone sees someone at a decent sized school go into the transfer portal, they want to see if Notre Dame is going to pursue them. Um, Carson Van Lynn, who is the player that is being referred to um, according to the Pittsburgh Tribune review was the number four option at Pitt this spring at offensive tackle. He has three career starts at right tackle. Um, so if he's good enough to play at Notre Dame this year, uh, I think Notre Dame's offensive line is in much worse shape than, uh, than I would have imagined. Um, I don't see that many high-quality offensive linemen available, so I don't see it making a lot of sense for Notre Dame to pursue the grad transfer um, market, even though obviously we have plenty of questions about the offensive line, but um, I don't see a ton of like sure things that, it, out there. Notre Dame has bodies. It's not like they don't have options. Um, they just need to get the options to play well. Next question is from Cheryl Rousseau at Cheryl R. Bunch of Numbers. From what I am hearing, the offensive line is a weakness. What does the team need to do? Well, I think they're doing it. I think what they needed to do is explore all the options in the spring, especially with Jarrett Patterson out look at a lot of different combinations, look at different bodies, determine who your best five players are, and then you can start to fit them into positions. And I think they've done that. I, I wouldn't call it a weakness. I think there's a lot of depth. I think there's potential here. Um, and, and I think it's amazing that two freshmen have put themselves in a position to possibly start. Um, and I think they're exceptional athletes. I mean, it's not like these guys were three, scrawny three-star guys that are marching out there. I mean, these are the two highest, two of the highest-rated linemen of the Kelly era that lived up to that billing, and those guys got themselves ready. You, you look at Marco Spindler's dad, and there was no way that kid wasn't going to be ready. Um, he's eating well. He's he's living a balanced life. He's you know got the genetics, and you know. <laughs> I take anybody in that family on the offensive line. I, I, I want to let it slip, Eric, but you call them Marco. <laughs> right. Rocco. Rocco. It, it just made me laugh too much to not say something. Uh, Rocco. How, how can I not call him Rocco? Rocco. He's such a Rocco. Isn't well, the dad Marco? I'm not. Yeah. Uh, that is Mark, I think. The best was when you called uh, – on the phone with me in a, in a, in a conversation with me, you, instead of saying Blake and Rocco, you call them Bl Block and Rako. That was really funny to me. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I mean, that is Mark. I don't think that I would call the uh, offensive line a weakness necessarily. It's something that there's a lot of question marks at, but there's talent there. Um, Notre Dame just needs to develop the guys, um, and it's going to take some time for them to get the experience that they need and develop chemistry together. Um, I, I think Notre Dame needs to be smart about how it starts the season and plays to the ability of that offensive line and making sure it um, puts them in advantageous situations and isn't expecting the offensive line to maybe carry them right from the get-go. But um, it certainly has is a place that a position that needs to be addressed. But um, I think uh, we'll see what uh, Jeff Quinn can do with with the group that he has. Um, speaking of uh, Rocco. ND Jeff 06 asked, who's more likely to start at FSU, Fisher or Rocco? Hard to believe after watching the clips that neither will. Well, I, I wouldn't bet against e- either of them, but if I had to pick one, I would say Rocco's probably in a better position because I, I think ultimately Jarrett Patterson may want to play tackle. And then if he does, either Lug or Fisher would have to move to guard. And I think Rocco's already established him as himself as a really good guard. Um, I'm not saying that overall Rocco is better than I don't, Rocco couldn't go out and play tackle. I don't think and play right. it at, at, at a high level, but I think he's got that guard position. He's got the inside track there. So a lot of it is comes down to Patterson's, kind of willingness, thoughts about where he best fits. You know, I, I know that Brian Kelly has was adamant about Lug being a guard eventually, and then he's now adamant that his best position is tackle. But I think Patterson's better than Lug, and I think if Patterson wants to play tackle, he probably should be given that opportunity. So but to go back to kind of retrofit that question, Rocco over Blake, just because of the whole Jarrett Patterson situation. Yeah. I don't think the, the Jarrett Patterson situation isn't necessarily just about what Jarrett wants to do either. I think he's good enough to play tackle and that's the biggest reason why they're, why they're willing to do that. So I, I still don't buy the idea of him playing guard. Um, and I, I just, I, I also side with you that I think Rocco is most likely just cause I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that there's one guard, let alone two guards, that you're totally confident will start over Rocco. I think we – it wouldn't be surprising if Dylan Gibbons is a guy that starts and they have confidence in him, but um, I'm not sure that there's another guy that you'd be like, okay, this is the reason why Rocco Spindler can't get on the field, um, whereas tackle may be a little bit more difficult. Like I mentioned last week, I'd like to see maybe both Blake and – and Rocco playing playing guard, if that makes sense. Um, but uh, if I had to bet, I would I would bet on Rocco. Um, but Blake has really done a good job this spring, and I, I'm really anxious to see him play on Saturday. Uh, next question is from at I Robert Doyle. We often hear stories of surging players in the spring. Is there a particular story you've heard from this camp that you are particularly excited to come to fruition for you to write about in the fall? Well, I mean, we're talking about um, a couple of them, the freshman offensive linemen. If those guys end up starting in the fall, that's going to be a great story. Um, we've we've heard, again, I need to see it myself, but we've heard about Cam Hart and um, some of the other corners getting better. 
at one point, Brian Kelly seemed to be really happy with how Houston Griffith was playing. I'd like to see what happens there because it would be a great story of a guy, you know, never kind of giving up on himself and, you know, Braden Lindsay being healthy um, and productive. That would be kind of fun to see. So those are kind of the ones that I'm following uh, that I would be excited to write about. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> to probably no one's surprise, the freshman offensive lineman would be the most interesting to me. Um, I, I'm, I, the Blake Fisher thing is the one that is, even though he was raked as a five-star by rivals, I believe, um, that's more shocking to me. I just didn't see the film of a guy that was ready to compete at that high of a level right away at Notre Dame. Um, I mean, and maybe it's because he had a poorly edited highlight film where his third play on the film was a cut block, which is certainly not a highlight for any offensive lineman. Uh, but uh, I, I just think that, what the way those guys have been able to come in and compete and it's not just them getting a chance because there's no one else out there. It's because they've earned it and they're impressing the heck out of the coaching staff and their fellow players. And um, I think uh, that would be a very interesting story to, to pursue um, in the fall. If those guys get the chances that it sounds like they may. Next question is from at Chris Fleck one. Can Jack Swarbrick strong arm Mark Emmert and take his seat directing the NCAA? How in the world is he still the head of the most out-of-touch organization in America? Is Emmert good for Notre Dame or a detriment? Um, I think my little sister could strong-arm Mark Emmert and do a better job. <laughs> um, I, I just stunned that they extended his contract two years and then fittingly like buried it in the 12th paragraph of a release uh, I, I have no words. I don't know what to say about that. Um, I, I think probably the the cherry on top, whatever the whatever the I guess whatever the opposite of a cherry is, because it's not very appetizing. But just the mismanagement of name, image, likeness is so incredible. I, I, I just. You know, I, I guess it's like anything else, though. I mean, if you, you know, whatever side of the aisle you're on, if you're watching Congress right now, you're like, how did that person get elected um, <laughs> with a lot of these people? And with Mark Emmer, I mean, they're making the people in Congress look like geniuses. In fact, they're the ones that are handling name and image and likeness for him. So I don't know. I, I don't have a great answer for you, but I don't think Jack Swarbrick wants that job. And I think uh, certainly Notre Dame wouldn't want Mark Emmert being their athletic director. Is Emmert good or bad for Notre Dame? I think he's bad for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that front, I'm not sure that he's done anything specifically to help or hurt Notre Dame. Certainly the forfeited games of the Brian Kelly area came under his watch. Um, I'm not sure that he was like directing that decision or anything like that, but and ND wasn't necessarily happy with that sanction. Um, but that's that's done more harm to guys like you and me in this in the SIDs that have to navigate the nonsense of which wins count <laughs> um, rather than anything else. I think the athletic department at Notre Dame has maintained its relevance during the Emmer era, so that's I guess a good thing. I don't know. I'm not sure that that has much of anything to do with him, but. Um, that at least is something. Um, I, I don't get the Emmer stuff either. 
I don't know if they think no one wants the job um, and, or, and, or he's a good punching bag and they'd rather keep him in that position and let him keep taking all the, all the vitriol from everyone. Um, and then once all that gets, whenever everything gets sort of settled, then, then they move on to a new guy and, and they get rid of him. Maybe they fire him at some point. I, I don't, I don't know, but uh, it, that was, it was definitely a surprising announcement and uh, seemingly one that they try to sneak by people too. Uh, next question is from at NDF underscore Discord, and it's a higher number game, a little bit like our prop bet. So I'll, let's go one at a time with these, Eric. First one is Kyle Hamilton, first forced turnovers or Notre Dame special teams touchdowns. And I assume this means for this upcoming season. Um, I'll go with Hamilton on that one. Yeah, I'm going Hamilton as well. I think he will uh, have a handful of those at least and uh, – Counting on that many special teams touchdowns seems like a little bit too much. Uh, next one starts by freshman on the offensive line or Chris Tyree and Michael Mayer combined touchdowns. So I think you're going to at least get 13 starts from the freshman and probably more than that. Uh, if it's 26, there's no way. Mayer <laughs> right. Can. So I, I'll go with the, I'm going to push my chips in on the freshman offensive lineman. Yeah, I'm going freshman offensive lineman too. I I think the ceiling there is is higher. The number can get higher there than I think would be reasonable for Tyree and Mayer touchdowns. Um, So I will go with that. I think this is an interesting question. I think it could be really close, close, or it could be really far apart. It depends. The the freshman offensive lineman thing is is such a crapshoot that they could start zero games or they could combine to start uh, 20. 26 games by the end of the season. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, what is uh, the next one we have is Notre Dame quarterback turnovers or combined underclassmen wide receiver touchdowns. Notre Dame quarterback turnovers versus underclassmen. So underclassmen is anybody that's not a senior or a grad senior, right? Okay. So, but we're counting Kevin Austin and Lindsay as seniors, right? They are in my book, yes. Okay. Well, I mean, because of the COVID exemption, of redshirting <laughs> and stuff. No, I, I would still count them as seniors, yeah. Okay. I'm going to go with quarterback turnovers. I am with you on that one as well. I'm not sure that there's a long list of underclassmen receivers that will have a lot of opportunities for touchdowns this year. Uh, next one, combined or and last one actually from NDF Discord, is combined Kyra Williams and Chris Tyree touchdowns or true freshman running back carries? I'd go with the touchdowns of the um, Tyree and Williams. I I think – I don't think they're going to be real eager to use Logan Diggs. Um, I think Sebo's going to be the cleanup guy in the fourth quarter. Estime is going to play, I think, a lot of special teams. He's got size – that would make it kind of intriguing to use him. Uh, so I'm probably talking myself out of what, <laughs> that, but I'm, I'm going to stick with the touchdowns. Yeah. I, I'm going to go touchdowns as well. I think this one could make it, this could, we could look really bad on this one pretty quick. If a, if a running back gets a few carries in a few games, because the, the carries are very easily to accumulate versus touchdowns. I mean, you can get that number a lot higher just with a few games. Um, but yeah, I think there's obviously just three other guys in the running back position that will get the probably 90% of the carries um, in, in terms of running backs, if not more. 
Um, so I, I'll, I'll go with the touchdowns from Williams and Tyree. Uh, next question we have is from at Bobby Bancroft with the announcement of the Indiana series. Are you guys surprised? We are still seeing this kind of far out scheduling. It seemed like one of the bigger positives from 2020 was making schedules in real time. No, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's where the openings are right now. I mean, if you're going to get a smaller cushion between when a game is scheduled, it's going to take a long time to work that down. And one of the reasons they were able to do it during the pandemic was because nobody was at the games. I mean, people plan weddings around games. They plan their lives and they get plane tickets and so forth. Because there weren't fans to have to deal with, that's why you can move the games around. Otherwise, it's it's just not – and again, to, to break that tradition is going to take a long time of not scheduling. So I, I don't see it changing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the suggestion would be don't just don't schedule the Indiana game yet. Wait for three more years and then schedule it or whatever. Um, but I, I think they already have other games scheduled out that far, so I think it just makes sense, at least from their standpoint, to fill out the schedule in those years. Um, the 2020 moves were also made in desperation. Those weren't necessarily uh, financially fueled like like these um, scheduling of games that are a decade out. Um, so I don't know if there is a – I would be curious to learn if there's some, some sort of financial benefit um, or, or, or long-term stability in scheduling out that far ahead or if you feel like you're risking not getting the games you want if you wait and uh, – yeah, you kind of have to judge the market too. You can't just you can't just just Notre Dame can't just decide. Oh, we're we're only going to schedule games two years out. It's like, well, we're, everyone else is doing it differently. Then you're just going to get stuck playing against uh, BYU and Coastal Carolina every year. So uh, I think uh, that's uh, what just what Notre Dame is has done, and it's going to take a while for that to change. Well, and it's been done for a long time. One of the ones that were so far out was Ohio State Notre Dame series in the middle 90s. I was in high school when that series was scheduled and it was in and that's the late 70s. And the reason they scheduled it so far in advance, they scheduled it behind Woody Hayes's back. Woody Hayes was this iconic Ohio State coach with a bad temper <laughs> and he did not want to play Notre Dame, so they did it behind his back. They scheduled it far enough into the future that they thought he would be dead. And he was when they played, but I can remember how excited I was when I heard about it. You know, I wasn't, I had no idea I was going to end up being a sports writer, but I said, I want to be in the stadiums for those two games. As it turned out, I covered both of them. All right. (laughs) This gave me a random random morbid question. If Notre Dame wanted to schedule a game, but they needed to wait till after Brian Kelly was dead for some reason because he would not want them to play them. What team would Notre, would Brian Kelly not want Notre Dame to play against? You know, I'm trying to think of of I don't think he's afraid to play anybody, and I'm trying uh-huh. to think if there was a, a team particularly he doesn't like despises. Yeah, nothing really comes to mind to me either. But no, I think that's just a, it's just kind of a funny concept. <laughs> Well, I mean, I could give you a million Woody Hayes stories, but I mean, <laughs> the guy had a temper, and uh, so he wasn't. But I mean, the athletic directors were and and coaches were more that way. I mean, 
there were a lot of years. I mean, if you go back decades and decades, teams didn't want to play Notre Dame. They did, they resented their success and they didn't want to schedule them. Right. Uh, next question is from at Hayden Adam Z. This is my last year at Notre Dame. Give me each of your favorite and least favorite games to cover, plus a dark horse game that was better to cover than expected from the last four seasons. My favorite game to cover was definitely the Clemson game this year um, in in the stadium, in Notre Dame Stadium. I, I'll have to look back at it later and figure out where that fits. Where it ranks but, it. But I would say on the night that it happened, it was number one in my book. Now I have to see if it sustains that over time. The worst game was the Michigan game. Uh um, in Ann Arbor in the rain. Yeah. Uh, some of that was because Carter wouldn't finish his story. <laughs> we got home at like <laughs> seven in the morning and I had to still do my top 25 and get up and interview Kelly in a few hours. I was just exhausted. It was just hard to explain that game to anybody. And it still in some respects is the sneaky game or whatever the under what, what, Dark Horse. What, Dark horse. Dark horse game. Definitely in 2017, the Michigan State game. You know, we didn't know if Notre Dame really was going to be able to come back from that 2016 season. And that was, you know, they had played Georgia and, and played them close and lost. We go up to Michigan State, and, and that was supposed to be a really close game, and they beat the snot out of them. But the best part of it was in the post game with Brian Kelly and the megaphone trophy. <laughs> and, and we were talking about that the whole way home. And then uh, Quentin Nelson lifting him up and shaking him like a rag doll. That was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, there's so much from our perspective, I guess, going off of because I can tell that from the, the games you pick, but also from like my perspective, so much goes into like covering a game other than just like the actual game itself, like there are plenty of close games, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the, your favorite game to have covered and stuff like that. But um, certainly that plays a role in it, but there's a lot that goes into it. The Michigan state game. That's a funny one. That was with you, I, you, me and Mike Farrell talking about uh, rhyming with. It's a megaphone. Coming up with every word that we can think of that rhyme with megaphone um, and uh, just being kind of slap happy uh, to get through the, the drive home that night. Uh, my favorite one was uh, the 2019 game at Georgia. Um, that atmosphere was just so incredible. Um, that's, that's, that's one of those kinds of nights that it makes you feel like you're stealing money um, from the company for, for working and doing something like that. And that game was a good game. It wasn't a blowout or anything like that. So that, that, that really, uh, that was a good one. Um, that, 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 that's towards the top of my list of games I've covered in general, let alone these last four seasons. Uh, least favorite, probably last year's game against Louisville. Um, that was a very boring game. It was a good time for a nap, and um, I was in the stadium for that one. I, 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 can't, I can't pick the Clemson game from last year for my favorite game because I wasn't there, and that, that makes, that makes it an incredible difference um, than from watching it on TV. Um, the Dark Horse game for me was the 2018 game against Northwestern. That was uh, the first time I had been to Northwestern's field, uh, which certainly isn't a palace by any means, but – it was an intriguing game. It had important moments in it, and it was more entertaining than I would have anticipated. So that was one that I don't think anyone would have ever guessed would have been an en enjoyable uh, game to cover, but it ended up being a pretty fun game to cover. So that was glad Michael Katarina went and got the vehicle, which 
about a half mile or so away in the pouring rain. Yeah, that's right. All right. Uh, speaking of Carter, next question is from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew. How do we get Carter Carls back? And then the second question is, if Jordan Botello and Isaiah Foskey collide at high speed with a quarterback between them, will announcers say he got bofoed or phobowed? Okay. <laughs> There's – there there are – I'm not touching the second part of that. <laughs> um, for How do we get back Carter? <laughs> you know – my heart breaks for us and for him. Um, and I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but I, I just think that um, I wish there was something more I could have done. That's all. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. 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 I mean, my answer was that if we knew how we could have <laughs> get him back, we would have never let him leave. Um, that wasn't certainly wasn't our choice and we wanted him to stay, but I, I think some of it is just, you know, you're in this big corporation and they don't know who you are and they didn't know who he was and how much potential and how much, how important his job was to not only our paper, but the corporation. I think, you know, this, this is getting technical, but we're not in the same content management system. Once we are, I think you'll see our stories and a lot more of the Gannett properties I think had that been the case from the beginning, they would have seen the impact that the Notre Dame beat at our paper can have on all the properties in Gannett. And I think maybe it would have been a different story. Yeah. And then I'll answer the, the less serious question about uh, Bofod or Fobod. I like the sound of Bofod better. It sounds a little like Bafo, which is a compliment. So I will go there. I think, I think, uh, I think, uh People might be curious what you mean by that and not necessarily get that you're talking about Botello and Foskey. Uh, but uh, I don't think anyone's – and no announcer will say that on the air. I'm, I'm fairly certain that, that – Nobody that's of my vintage will say it on the <laughs> air because there's some connotations there that I'm not going to touch. I understand. Uh, next one and last one is from Bert Leonard at Bert2834. I've wondered this for a while. What was the question and the follow-up question in the intro that had Tyler laughing so hard? Um, the I know the answer to this. Says, now that's a follow-up question? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not actually me laughing. The person laughing is Austin Huff of the Goshen News. And uh, it was a press conference after Ball State in 2018 where Notre Dame narrowly won. Naturally, right. we didn't have a lot of positive questions for Brian Kelly. I don't, I'm not, Eric may have asked a question before Austin. I'm not positive. Probably I did. Eric usually asks questions early, but um, so Austin, Austin, instead of asking questions about what went wrong, asked about Jalen Elliott, Elliott's interceptions. And then so Kelly was applauding him for the positive question. And then after that, Austin followed up with a question about Notre Dame's offense executing to convert those turnovers into points. And uh, so that's when that's when uh, Brian Kelly said, "Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen." Uh, so it's not actually a compliment to Eric; it's it's more of a joke than anything. It's not. No, it's him trying to take <laughs> me to school and telling me that I should be more like Austin Huff from <laughs> News. And and I don't have anything against Austin. I think those were amazing questions, but I'm not killing kissing Brian Kelly's butt after a crappy game like that. No, that was uh, a that, that was funny. I think that might have been Austin's first season covering Notre Dame, so he was uh, 
he was uh, happy to have uh, tickled Brian in that moment and everyone well, else. And it continued. Then Brian, like, called on him at the next press conference. Yeah, Brian, Brian was telling him to sit up front and, <laughs> and tell, he even made a joke at, at Tim Priester during that, that press conference. I think he said, like, to, he doesn't have, he's tired of looking at Tim's sour face or something like that. <laughs> Brian likes to have fun with us. I, I know. And, and some, and I would say that a lot of this was in good humor. It wasn't right. Delicious. There are, there are times that he doesn't like us for sure, but there are also times where he likes to joke. And I think he knows that we can sort of take those jokes too. And we don't, we don't mind that, but. Well, but you got me in trouble <laughs> because you did a over and under how many names Brian Kelly was going to get wrong on his. <laughs> and Kelly heard about it. So. I go up there at the very next press conference, minding my own business, putting my tape recorder up on the, and he starts making fun of my tape recorder. I know that he's mad about that question. He's not mad about my tape recorder. He's saying like, why is your tape recorder so outdated when everybody else is, uses their phone? And I defended my little tape recorder. He said, well, you know what? My tape recorder is not going to ring in the middle of your press conference. <laughs> And there, there was one, I don't know if it was, it was around that same time where I was asking him a question about John Shannon and he called him Scott Daly. And then he, and then he goes, Oh, there I go messing up names again. So he, he, he can laugh at himself too. Um, but we, I, I think someone needs to have an intervention with him on Houston Griffith though. We got, we got to get him to stop calling him Houston Griffin uh, because it, it is, it has been passed down to, to Marcus Freeman as well. Well, and it's like you, then you're like, you freeze. You're like, is it Griffin or Griffin? You know, <laughs> yeah. so many times Griffin. <laughs> All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. A bit of a long one. Uh, if you don't, if you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week to recruit recap the Blue Gold game. Then we'll probably not be as regular with our podcast. Um, but until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame spring football coverage needs. Yeah.